Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Awesome. Happy Mother's Day to everybody who didn't get to say Happy Mother's Day to yet. Um, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's a tradition in this class that the mothers do the chicken dance to start <laughs> class on Mother's Day. So, did y'all want to? Did y'all want to do that? No. Um, so I'm curious. So last week I was at the youth, and y'all continued doing the discussion, right, on the the titles or names of the Holy Spirit. How far did y'all get? Did you get all the way through it? All the way. <laughs> you did. Okay. Nice. So, so I didn't know where you had left off before. So which one was it that you did last week? Okay. Because I made sure Mike had like, because when I gave Sheila the first edition of it, it was only half of the actual guide that I produced. And I was like, this will probably be good enough to get through one class. And so I gave him the whole rest of it. Um, so I don't know if y'all got the whole thing or not this time. It was really rich, though. It was good. Good. It was. What was the guy, what, what title was it you were discussing? It's it's not that big a deal, but it was good, yes? Yes. It's really good. You know, um, I think that that's a a worthwhile study um, for all three members of the Godhead. You know, if you do a study on just the names of God, it can be very, very rich. Obviously, the names that Christ, uh, what Christ was foretold to be called is a really interesting study. And then the names that he gives himself when he's on earth is a really interesting study. And then, of course, y'all are doing, or we've been doing without me, the, uh, the names and the titles of the Holy Spirit. So we've been talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, just called pneumatology, a uh, big word. And uh, we were talking last time that we were together about the connection between the day of Pentecost um, or the celebration of Pentecost and what we now think about as Pentecost from a New Testament perspective, Acts chapter 2, and its connection to Sinai and the delivery of the law. Um, and when we were last together, we were talking about this concept a little bit, which is Pentecost and Jubilee. Can anybody remember? What, what, what was Jubilee? Forgiveness. That's true. Forgiveness. What is it? It's the release of uh, slaves and forgiveness of debts and returning to land. Correct. Yeah, so it was every 50th year, right? Because it was a Sabbath of Sabbaths year, so 7 times 7, so 49, and then you do the following one, so the 50th year. 
um, laid out in uh, Leviticus chapter 25 is just one of the places that it's laid out. And so we talked about the fact that um, Pentecost has a, has a significant relationship to the year of Jubilee. This is from Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. You're to count it seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you are to sound a ram's horn loudly in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You will sound it throughout your Land on the Day of Atonement, you are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be your jubilee when each of you is to return to his pro- return to his property and each of you to his clan. The 50th year will be your jubilee. You are not to sow, reap, not to sow, reap what grows by itself or harvest its untended vines. It is to be holy to you because it is the jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. So as we said, all ancestral lands were returned to who originally owned them. If you were a a slave, as it was called, which there's a big misunderstanding with the word slave when we hear it in the New Testament because we think about, um, you know, uh, modern America southern slavery and what's called chattel slavery that would have been different than what is referred to oftentimes in scripture that's a whole study in itself but you know there were people who were voluntarily uh, had sold themselves into servitude as a way to alleviate debt it was actually a pretty good way to get out of debt back in that era when there weren't as many economic options available to people as we have in our modern economies so if you were deeply in debt and there was no way you were ever going to get out you could say look I'll, I'll be willing to be your slave, your voluntary servant, to get the debt paid off. Um, And then, of course, if that was true, then in the 50th year, you were set free. You had to let all those people go, etc. So, um, before we get into that, I have a slide I'm going to show you because somebody asked a really good question. Um, I think it was Denise, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, no, it was the other Debbie, I think, that asked this question. and it was about the harvest because we're celebrating the harvest. She's like, what's the deal? Like, you know, it's in April and May. So uh, I found this in a book on, that I have on Old Testament festivals. And so I just took a picture of it. But this was the modern, uh, this was the agricultural practices in Israel. And as you can see, you have barley and wheat happening in April and May, right where we are today is when they would have harvested. So it wouldn't have been the fall like we do here in the United States. So that's why you had the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all that stuff like happening right around here was this was the time of the harvest that mattered for what we're talking about. The barley harvest was their most important harvest because that was their what we would call cereal. That was a main staple of their um, food sources. So... Anyway, I thought that that would be interesting to you. So, the significance of Pentecost in the Hebrew culture is important when we study Pentecost so we can get a real understanding of all of its meaning for us because Pentecost was connected with this concept of Jubilee. So, God had freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then God had fulfilled His promise to give them a holy land. And then God had provided rest for them from their labors. Now, why is this? Again, this is a little bit of um, recap because we discussed this briefly like two weeks ago. But when they were brought out of Egypt, they were told, you're going to go to a place that's your own, but then what happened? 
They complained, and God does something in response to that. Yeah, he made them wander through the desert for how long? 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. So we have the 40 days. We have the 40 years. Then he takes them into the promised land. But they have some work to do, don't they, initially? The work they have to do is they have to get rid of the inhabitants of the land. So we have famous stories like the wall of Jericho, as an example, right? And then it's after that that they then are given their own land to settle in, which then allows them to plant a crop for the first time in more than 40 years, which allows them to then have a harvest so they can celebrate. So that became uh, the, the jubilee was this remembrance of this idea that God gave them a holy land and then they had a way that they could grow crops and they could celebrate and they could rest from their labors. So, there was some foreshadowing and then fulfillment that takes place because there was 50 days of anticipation between Pentecost, I mean, sorry, Passover and Pentecost. Now, when was Christ crucified? Passover. The Passover, exactly. He was crucified, by the way, at the same place that Abram put Isaac on the altar. For sure. For sure. When you go to Israel, one of the cool things that if, if you come with me, we go and we stand where Abram left his servants. If you remember the story, he says, listen, um, we've come, come far enough. From now on, it should be me and the boy, right? And by the way, the boy was probably 21 or 22 years old at that point. He wasn't a little kid. So he had his whole life with him. He says, we're going to go on alone. And then they go on, and you can walk straight down and then up, 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 into where Jerusalem is and where what is now the, um, where Golgotha would have, would have become. So, uh, I mean, it's not like it's the GPS point where Christ was crucified, but he was crucified on the same mount where Isaac was taken. Um, so, uh, there's all this symbolism and fulfillment. So, there's 50 days between Pentecost, I'm sorry, between Passover and Pentecost. What, do you recognize the number? 50. What's the Jubilee number? Exactly. Then, you have the first fruits. That's what you did at Jubilee, and that's what you did at the Feast of Weeks, uh, which is Pentecost. Uh, is you would give out your first fruits. Well, the first fruits are the first seeds. You would dump seed onto the ground. Well, look what uh, Christ says in John. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And then Romans tells us, not only that, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. So Christ is the seed that goes in the ground and then on the day of Pentecost the first fruits are given and the Romans tells us that the first fruits are the Holy Spirit 50 days later. So it's the same connection. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. This down payments, this idea of 
first fruits. And so then you had divine speech coming from divine fire. Now, where have we seen that before? That's true. God speaks out of fire frequently, yes? So remember, what did I say there's a big connection between last time? Pentecost and what? Sinai. So what happened on Sinai? Yep, Moses gave the law. So Moses goes up on the mountain, right? Does anybody remember what the, what the circumstances were, what the setting was like around the mountain? Aha, uh -huh, it was covered with fire and smoke. Look at what Exodus 19, 9-18 says. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up to the mountain. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. So God is speaking out of the, mount, out of the fire. Deuteronomy 4 recounts this happening. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens and enveloped a totally black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. Diligently watch yourselves because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. Has the people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you have and lived? He let you hear His voice from heaven to instruct you. He showed you His great fire on earth and you heard His words from the fire. This is another one, Deuteronomy 5.22. Um, I'll skip reading it, but it again makes emphasis of the fact that the Lord spoke to the Israelites out of fire. Well, what do we see happen in Acts chapter 2? Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were saying, staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we here see on the day of Pentecost, God speaking through fire. But what's the difference? What's the unique thing now? Yes, He is speaking through the people. Now, lest we think that I'm the one making this connection, I'm not. The New Testament makes this connection. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews is making this comparison and contrast between how God spoke to people before and what believers had access to before and what they have access to now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says, For you, Christian, is what he's saying there, you believers, have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Here he's very clearly referencing Sinai. He's like, you didn't come to that. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So, the, he, we didn't come to that. We came to a fire that allows us to have intimate relationship with God, 
and in which it's not he's speaking far away, he now begins to speak through us. Any thoughts or questions about that? <coughs> I've never thought about the comparison about the fire like that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So Moses had done what to the mountain? Well, he went he up the mountain. Exactly. He ascended the mountain. What did Christ do? He ascended. When Moses came up, the law came down. Christ comes up. A new law comes down. But the new law is not a law written on stone tablets, is it? Do you see the connection? There's a new covenant that's going to happen. See, Jeremiah said, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. Well, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity, and never again remember their sins. Amen. So, what does Christ say? In the same way he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Paul, writing to Corinthians, references this. He says, If the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters of stone, here he's referring to Sinai, the law, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more Glorious. For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. See, the law was given, but the law didn't bring righteousness. Now, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and as it said in Jeremiah, He's written it on our hearts. And now we, don't, we have it inside of us to have the righteousness of God that then comes out of us and speaks. You know, it's interesting, like, we think about um, this idea of of Christ, of God speaking. And I think that um, a lot of us have this notion that there was this time that God spoke and it started with Moses and then it ended with maybe John and then he stopped speaking. The Lord stopped speaking. Yeah, I think a lot of us think like that, right? Like we think there was this time when he spoke. And then, like there was a long time he didn't say anything. And then he spoke for a little while, and then he stopped talking. Just stopped. But what does John 1.1 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the what? Word. word. And the Word was God. 
God is Word, right? He is Logos. It is His very nature to speak. He is not silent, and He is not silent now. He speaks through His Scripture and through His church to the world, right? And so if the stone tablets could bring the message down from God after Moses ascended, now Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit comes down, and now we don't have a new covenant, a covenant on tablets of stone. We have a covenant in hearts of, that we are then able to proclaim the good news. See, Luke, Jesus, um, there's a famous thing that happens. He goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. He says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Dude, I, can, I get chills just thinking about that moment. Can you imagine? By the way, if you read further, they tried to take him to the edge of a cliff and throw him off. And he did a cool, tr uh, cool you know, teleportation <laughs> trick where he's like, yeah, I'm no longer here. Sorry, it's not my time. So here he ushers in the true jubilee. I'm trying to help you all see that God is making this connection between the freeing of the captives, the freeing of the slaves, the returning of the land to what he's doing in with Christ and then the Holy Spirit and then of course through us is we are now truly setting the captives free. We are truly restoring what has been taken. Yes, ma'am. Do we think that, that whenever the Lord died, and was that the year of Jubilee? No. Okay, is it whenever He returns? There's a lot of debate about the second question. Okay. Yes. Because that would make sense. Correct. Wow. Yes. But, atonement. but you know, people, people try to do the math, all the math, to come up with when a Jubilee would be, and so that means Jesus would come back then. Um, if any of y'all do that and want to sell all your stuff, I'll give you a dollar for everything. Um, there's a no one knows, but of course, of course, we could we could foresee that that might make sense. But um, like I, I think it's interesting that he chose to. I think it could have also made sense that he would be sure to be on the cross on the year of jubilee, but he wasn't. Um, and there's probably some reasons for that too because the festivals wouldn't have taken place in the same way at the time that, and stuff like that. But anyway, um, yeah. Okay, good question. So, foreshadowing and then fulfillment in Pentecost. If we go back to read what happens um, in Acts chapter 2, the fire comes, they, they all start glorifying God, and Peter stands up and he begins preaching. And as we said before, if you remember the culture, what's going on in Jerusalem is that 
you have all these Hellenized Jews, and they live outside of Jerusalem. They live all over what we consider the Middle East today and the Mediterranean today. And so they're coming from, you know, what would have been Antioch and Alexandria and even down in parts of Africa, and they're all coming to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and stay for the Feast of Weeks. And so when Peter speaks, there's this just melting pot of humans that are in the street, that all different cultures and languages, but they all happen to be ethnically Jewish, right? They're genetically connected back to Abraham. And so Peter preaches this sermon. He stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, what I love is, by the way, most people forget this part. It's like, have you ever seen like when a fighter is about to go in the ring and he's got like all of his like little entourage and they all just stand behind him while he talks and just kind of look tough? Like that's kind of how I would picture this, right? All eleven are just like, just kind of giving the slow burn, you know, while Peter's up there preaching. Anyway, um, that's just my view. It probably didn't happen that way, but um, Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. He's never been to A&M. He doesn't understand that that's a normal thing. On the, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, joke. Uh, that was for Matt. On the, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Of course, that is this passage right here, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. After this, I will pour out my, my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he, Peter understands that this prophecy is fulfilled right now. When he's standing there, it's happening right that moment. This fulfillment has taken place. By the way, I don't have time to get into this in a lot of detail, but a lot of people get hung up on this stuff right here. Blood, fire, columns of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood. If you study, this is language that is used all the time just to represent that God's about to do something huge. It doesn't mean literally that the, the sun turns to darkness and the moon turns to blood and all those things. A lot of people are like, well, did that actually happen? If you just study in the Old Testament, that language is used over and over every time there's going to be like this big cataclysmic event. So, the distinguishing characteristic, by the way, of the Old Covenant was what? Anybody know? Circumcision. That's true. But what, what else was really unique about the Old Covenant? This is really obvious. It's, I'm not trying to give you a trick question. Like, One God. Yeah, monotheist. Okay, yeah, definitely monotheist. What? Sacrifice. Mm, okay, maybe. Wait, what was the question? <laughs> what is the, what's the like overriding... Um, you obey. Uh, obedience. Okay. Just go ahead. 
Well, let me ask you this. Who was it with? Yahweh. No. Nope. And the people. No. Nope. Yahweh is the maker of the covenant. Who did he make it with? Israel. The Israelites. Oh, yeah, Israel. Wait, wait, wait. He made it with himself, I thought, that he wouldn't break it. Yeah, but it's made with the Israelites. Right. The Israelites are the only ones who participate oh, yeah. in the Old Covenant. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The Canaanites didn't participate, did they? No. The Ammonites? Mm -hmm. The Philistines? No. Like, they can convert... But the covenant is made with the people of Israel, right? That's the thing. It's wiped away right here. The most significant ingredient or distinguishing characteristic of the old covenant is that it was with the Israelites. Well, what's going to happen when Joel's prophecy comes to pass? Exactly. Exactly. Everybody's going to be able to be involved. The whole world's going to get involved. And now we got men and women and daughters and sons. We got slaves. It's basically lottie dottie, everybody, as we used to say in the army. Right? Everybody. Now, by the way, some people in our modern world, we have all these debates over whether women are allowed to talk in church and stuff. And so this throws them off when they read this stuff. This isn't what he cares about in these verses at all, by the way. Because. To prophesy meant that you had God speaking through you. Prophecy was more about the indwelling of God than anything else. Because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant system, only very specific people were given that blessing. But now, everyone's going to get the Holy Spirit, which makes everyone in that sense of the word a prophet does that make sense yeah okay so if this is the end of the old covenant mm -hmm. it's hard for me to imagine that because then god still doesn't he still have a covenant with the israelites or the jewish people today even though this is i mean they have the chance to be mm -hmm. uh, to come into the new covenant because he brought them back to their land after Mm -hmm. the situation with Hitler, and he's protecting that land mm -hmm. for the day of our Well, the day, UN right? did. So, so we should really give them the honor and credit. Mm -hmm. It's a joke. Oh, I didn't even hear it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, 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 so I understand what you're asking. So let me just say, let me just say this, because you're gonna, you, what you're speaking about is a disputed doctrine, okay? Because that concept comes from... Um, a system of thought called dispensationalism. And what dispensationalism says is that God operated differently in different dispensations and it treats the nation of Israel as a unique track, if you want to call it that, I mean they might use a different word, in redemptive history. And that God is going to do something different for the Jews. Like and they even, dispensationalists even argue amongst themselves, but many dispensationalists would say they don't even have to believe in Jesus, that he's just going to keep this Jewish covenant with them. But that's, that, that system is known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism sits outside of the th kind of three biggest eschatological frameworks, um, which would be premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Dispensationalism is, in a way, 
uh, a form of it's one type of premillennialism. So, I, I, just to answer the question, it's not, it's not that it is that way. You said, isn't it this way? It's not that it is. It's that there are some people who would, who would argue that God is going to literally keep every promise he made to Israel no matter what. Okay. And then others, okay, got it. The counter to that would be that, that, that the church mm -hmm. is the fulfillment of who Israel was supposed to be. So we're the new Israel. Well, we are the fulfillment of Israel. Like the, and I'm using that term specifically because um, we're down in the weeds a little bit. But in the debate amongst dispensationalists and kind of everyone else, the dispensationalists have created a straw man argument. Do you know what a straw man argument is? So a straw man is you say that your opponent says something that they don't really say, that's easy to defeat. And by defeating the made-up straw man, it makes you seem rhetorically like you've beat your opponent. Does that make sense? So the straw man they created is that they say that all the other theologians in the world are replacement, th they believe in replacement theology. And they create this notion that say, an amillennialist or a postmillennialist believes that the church has replaced Israel. And that's very clearly not true. So since it's easy to show that's not true, boom, the straw man collapses. Whereas someone who is being intellectually honest would say, no, 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 what they're saying is Israel still exists, but the church has been grafted in, and the church becomes the fulfillment and becomes true Israel. Israel fulfills all it was meant to be in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Because the ones who see Jesus as their Messiah during that time period came into it with us. C correct. I can see what you're saying, definitely. Yes. <coughs> Thank you. I'm very comfortable with the fact that I am a, an adopted mm -hmm. uh, child of God, but because I am not a Jew, mm -hmm. I'm a Gentile. Yep. I don't hold the same status with God as a Jew does. Hmm. I, I don't think. I mean, when I'm in the grocery store, hmm. when a, a kosher tom tom, mm -hmm. I will make a point to let a Jew go ahead of me, hmm. just because of the way that I think. I, is, is that a, a well? I think that's. I think it's very kind of you. I would suggest. You might want to consider that everyone is on equal footing at the foot of the cross. Because he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Well, I don't. Want, I don't think you need to be less courteous. Uh, that's what I'm trying to. In fact, I think that's a great habit. Um, but but I would just suggest to you that. Um, we all can approach the throne boldly in Christ, which is an amazing thing to say. You have to even say that with humility, right? Like, oh my goodness, this privilege of being able to go before the living God, the creator and sustainer of all things. I mean, I'm just like, it, it, it's, it's, 
incomprehensible to me that it's true, but Scripture says it's true, and we have to trust in that. And and actually, you know, if you look at your question is in front, is, and I don't want to go down this week too much, but your question is really what Paul is answering in Romans nine through eleven. Because what he does in Romans is he says we're saved by faith. And he's having this kind of, he, he's a great rhetorician because of his training. And he can foresee in the debate this fictional Jewish scholar who's going to be debating with him about this notion of salvation by faith alone. So, he's going to, so he hears the argument the Jewish person would make and he says, and he, he, he answers it, and then he hears the next argument, and then he answers that. That's the whole book of Romans. Well, when he gets to Romans 9, he's just done the whole part in Romans 8, how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and you know that whole section. Well, he, the, the Jewish debater is then going to say, okay, well then, what good was it for me to be a Jew? God has lied to us. He has lied to us. He said, if you're a child of Abraham, you're in. And what Paul then does for three chapters, 9, 10, 11, is go, really? Is that really true? Because um, Ishmael's a child of Abraham. How about that guy? Okay. Uh, we know that Esau was a descendant of Abraham. How about that guy? And he, he basically carves out this whole framework where he's like, we know, you know, Jewish person, you know it's not about genetics. That's the point he makes right there. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.